may be seated. Well, good morning and welcome to our time together today. Just a little update. Uh, my wife, Dawn, had surgery on Thursday uh, to receive the metal, for, uh, to remove the metal out of her foot. She had some titanium plates and screws, and so they went in. Uh, she was having a lot of problems with that. And I've asked uh, the doctor to save all that titanium because I'm going to melt it down and make a golf driver out of it. But... <laughs> Or maybe some jewelry, but I don't think Don will want that. So anyway, she's doing well. She's got to keep her foot up and iced, and there'll be a couple more weeks of recovery. So for us, this has been the year of the foot, and uh, uh, she is obviously getting very tired of it. So if you pray for her, think of her, pray for patience and for a good recovery. So, uh, But we are thankful for the medical uh, technology and uh, the things we enjoy in this country. So thanks for praying for her. Uh, also, uh, we'll have a little announcement at the end of the service about next week's service, so make sure you pay attention to that. I was reading this week uh, about a woman named Christine Bishop. Uh, the article came by way of uh, the Muskegon Chronicle, a newspaper in Michigan, and this actually occurred in uh, Fruitport Township. I don't know where that is, but it must be near Muskegon. And there's a woman named Christine Bishop, and she lived on a rental property. And uh, one of the things she did was she collected stray pets, stray animals. She uh, functioned as kind of a rescue organization for stray dogs, cats, lost ducks, stray bunny rabbits. And she called her uh, organization the Critters Cafe, the Critters Cafe. Her heart was right. She really wanted to do what was right for these animals. And then one day somebody dropped off a cage full of pet rats, pet rats. And uh, it wasn't too long before the neighbors started to complain of the stench coming from the house. And also they could see rats running in and out from the crawl space and outside in the outbuildings. And finally, when the uh, officials intervened and they got a search warrant, they found uh, that rats had totally overrun the whole place. In fact, they initially removed some 1,500 rats from that property, and they estimated that there were at least 1,000 rats left in the property. The property owner, whose name is Dale Carr, said the rats are all feral, so they'll bite you, they carry ticks, fleas, and they're susceptible to rabies and disease. The township supervisor said the number of rats can breed... Amazingly, he said 1,500 rats can be born every three weeks. So if they're not removed, they're not making any progress there. And it says in this article that the next step and the plan is to wrap the house and fumigate it, which could cost the owner nearly $30,000, not including cleanup and disposal cost. Uh, so I guess the moral of the story is, is if you're a landlord, be careful who you rent to. And uh, make sure that little item, yes, we allow pets, uh, is really defined. Uh, so this lady, even though her heart was probably right, it got out of control very quickly. As we come to the second chapter of Second Peter, this second letter of Peter's, remember he's writing in this letter to warn the church about false teachers. And the passage that Bill read for you today, he reminded us in verses 1 through 3 that uh, Peter said, in Israel, there were false prophets, and why do we think it's going to be any different? And there will be false teachers among the churches. And we've seen down through the centuries that there are always false teachers in Christendom. Uh, in the first three centuries, in fact, it's interesting that Wes uh, spoke about our statement on Christology, about the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Because the first three centuries of the existence of the church in the second, third, and fourth centuries, the arguments and the councils and everything were about the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, about his nature, about who he was. And the early church hammered that out. And thankfully, there were people who understood God's word, who combated heresy in that day and age and set the standard for what we call orthodox belief. Orthodox Christianity. And yet many of these heresies are still with us today. They may look different and sound a little different, but they find their basis clear back in the second or third centuries when it comes to the person of Christ. And actually, we see here in chapter two one of the primary considerations or markers or tattoos of a false teacher is they deny the Lord Jesus Christ. They secretly introduce heretical teaching, but ultimately they deny Christ. So Wes's words about what does ministries, preachers, teachers, whatever it is, what do they do with Jesus Christ is a fundamental question. And so Peter is warning the church to be careful about welcoming error. You need to be careful if somebody drops off a cage full of pet rats at your house, okay? And same with the church. The metaphor is complete when we think of the word apostate. We introduced this last week as we looked at the passage before us last week. And the apostate is a noun that describes a particular kind of person in Scripture. The Greek word uh, means, simply means lexically to fall away from. So in the Bible, in the New Testament, it refers to a person who knows the truth and then deliberately falls away from it. An apostate knows the truth and intentionally embraces falsehood. It's hard to believe, and yet there are many, many with us today in the culture that we live in. The dictionary defines an apostate as a person who has rejected the tenets of religion he once claimed to believe. So Peter is genuinely concerned. He is righteously angry. If you read through chapter 2, this is language that is very pointed. This is language that is angry, in a sense, righteously angry, that these people would prey upon the church and prey upon Christians. And so we come to verse 17 in our discussion, in our teaching this morning. We'll look at verses 17 through 22. And verse 17 serves as a summary of what is to follow. Typically, when we write an article, we write uh, the body of the article, and then we have a summary paragraph at the end, at the bottom. Biblical writers most times will give you a summary before they unpack it and present the rest of it. And that's how verse 17 functions. It's a summary of what is to follow. So look at verse 17 again. These, referring back to these false teachers, are springs without water and mist driven by a storm for whom the black darkness has been reserved. Uh, This is the apostates are arid and impotent, arid and impotent, or You could title this verse, How to Spot the Problem in Any Local Church. How to Spot the Problem. First of all, their teaching is empty. Look at that, springs without water. My niece in Montana, one of my nieces, is a real estate broker, and so I get her mailings or email every week of uh, available properties, listings, as well as a report on the real estate conditions in the Flathead Valley. And it's, it's interesting to read. And uh, a, a property caught my eye yesterday. Uh, not that I'm moving there anytime soon because it was $1.2 million for this property. But it said on the property, one of the descriptions was, it has a pond, a spring-fed pond. 
And then you looked at the pictures and everything was dry. You could kind of see a depression in the ground where it was dry. And the listing said, reportedly, this pond has only been dry two years out of 25. And I thought, well, they should have taken pictures when it was full of water. You know, the teaching is empty, springs without water. That's the idea. If you go and you're looking for the spring and there's no water, you're, it's empty. There's nothing to offer. And that's the description here. He's going to expand on that in verse 18. The second part of verse 17 is they're mist driven by a storm. He's using these metaphors. Their teaching is powerless. Not only is it empty, springs without water, it is powerless, mist driven by a storm. And you think of a haze, a water droplets or fog, which we have in the winter here. That's really water droplets in the air. And the wind just blows it wherever, and there's no power in the water droplet because it doesn't add to anything as far as helping the land grow or helping crops grow. It is powerless in that sense. In the end of verse 17, it says, they will be judged for whom black darkness has been reserved. This is a reminder back in verse 4 of chapter 2 of the fallen angels, these angels who have sinned and they are bound in a pit of darkness, pits of darkness, and it looks forward to Revelation chapter 20 where the angel of the Lord will bind Satan throughout the millennium for a thousand years in pits of darkness. And here's this picture of the fact of judgment. It's an idea of judgment, and we will see that described in verses 20 through 22. But the tragedy of Peter's time in the first century, the tragedy of our time is that there are people who are claiming to lead in churches, in ministries around the world, and yet they are full of empty and boastful words. There is no power to what they teach. Their experiences in teaching are swollen beyond their natural size, overblown with exaggerated claims, dressed in fancy words. These people were like spiritual puffer fish. You know what a puffer fish is? It looks regular until it's threatened, then it gets all big, inflating themselves to impress and intimidate others. And when these people operate today, wherever it is, we would expect great claims for what God has done and will do through them and for their remarkable spiritual benefits that they're claiming and the freedom they are claimed to have following their simple program. But, of course, we are disappointed. There is a summary statement. Their teaching is empty. Their teaching is powerless. And they will be judged. In verse 18, apostates have nothing of value to say. This is where uh, the apostle Peter is expanding upon this idea of springs without water. Look at verse 18 with me. Verse 18, for speaking out arrogant words of vanity, they entice fleshly desires by sensuality, those who barely escape from the ones who live in error. They speak arrogant words of vanity. Uh, Wells without water, when you think of Peter's time, when you think of biblical history, when you think of the Middle East, when you think of a desert land, the most tragic disappointment for an eastern traveler is coming to a well or a spring and there's no water. And Peter says that uh, that's what these teachers are like. In the Old Testament, teachers were often compared to thirst-quenching wells. God explained the tragedy of no thirst-quenching in Jeremiah's time thus, this way. Quote, my people have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. 
Jesus himself in the gospel promised that he would be the one who quenches our spiritual thirst, and then he would use us, the church, to quench the spiritual thirst of others. So they speak out arrogant words of vanity that turn into emptiness. And secondly, they entice. Notice it says they entice there. They entice people by fleshly desires, by sensuality. Uh, They're enticing them. And that's the picture. It's a fishing metaphor. It's the picture of a lure or a tied fly. If any of you are fly fishermen, you know what it's like to tie a fly. And you try to make it look as close as possible to the insect that you know the fish are biting on. Uh, When I tried tying a fly, it just looked like a big glob of fur with a hook in it. It didn't entice anything. But uh, this is the picture here that uh, that the fish will be, uh, be tricked. He will be enticed to think that's the real thing, but there's always a hook in it. So it's a fish imagery that we see here. And the identity of those who are being enticed are those who barely escape from the ones who live in error. Uh, I'm thinking these are new Christians. There's some debate about the identity of these ones. But at the very least, they are people who are untrained, untaught, and they are barely escaping uh, the ones who live in error. And we would expect that brand-new Christians would be especially easy prey. In fact, he says that they entice people who are just escaping, uh, recent converts from paganism, from humanism, whatever the ism is. These people are waiting to teach them their version of what they claim to be the truth. Once again, the Peter uses this fishing imagery. He did this earlier in chapter 2, verse 14, an enticement. And they're angling for new Christians, young Christians, or they're a picture like carnivorous animals on prey for the weakest members of the herd. So the false teachers focus their attention on the weakest converts. Remember this. What looks good, what looks truthful many times is simply a lure that always has a hook. It's an enticement. It is a bait that has a hook. And we need discernment for that. And this is uh, the only way we can have our deep thirst spiritually uh, completed is through Jesus Christ or quenched. In the meantime, it fulfills the basic quest for religion without having to take any serious effort. These false teachers were promising something that they could not deliver on. Verse 19, he expands on this idea of mists driven by a storm. Apostates are powerless in the face of sin. Look at verse 19 with me. Promising them freedom. In other words, the false teachers are promising these ones they're enticing freedom while they themselves are slaves of corruption For by what a man is overcome, by this he is enslaved. So apostates are powerless in the face of sin. They bring empty promises. We must beware of teachers and people who promise something that is different from the promises of God's word. That's why it is critical for every believer to be in the word of God. It tells us that these false teachers are themselves slaves of corruption. But notice they're promising this freedom that they can't deliver upon. Rabbi Zacharias, the great apologist of our time, says this about freedom, and I quote him. I particularly like to warn my American audiences about this. Freedom is not the same thing as autonomy. Freedom does not mean I am a law unto myself. Prince Philip, the Duke of Edinburgh, speaking to a hostile university audience that jeered him, stopped in the middle, and in non-regal language he said, Shut up. 
Freedom can be destroyed as easily by making a mockery of it as it can by its retraction. And that is precisely what man has done, Zacharias goes on to write. In an attempt to be reasonable, man has become irrational. In an attempt to deify himself, he has defaced himself. In an attempt to be free, he has made himself a slave. And like Alexander the Great, he has conquered the world around him, but he has not yet conquered himself, unquote. They themselves are slaves of corruption. The last part of verse 19 is really a proverbial statement or a fulfillment. We can find it uh, in John chapter 8, verses 34. And there we see in, uh, in the end of, <clears throat> excuse me, verse 19, that for by what a man is overcome, by this he is enslaved. Uh, it's a military term. It's a military picture that Peter is using here. It's the custom of a victorious military taking the defeated enemy in chains as slaves of the victorious army. That's the picture here, enslaved by what they thought was going to set them free. Well, we have to stop here for a minute, and we have to pause and consider this. There's a lot going on in this passage, and uh, the challenge is, is not to overlook some things. But we need to pause and review some of the poisonous strategy of these false teachers that's eating away even churches today and ministries today around the world. First of all, their target group will be gullible Christians, gullible Christians who are either so new or so untaught to be unstable, to be unstable. Uh, my family has a long history in the military, though I did not serve, but my grandfather, my mom's dad, was in World War I. And uh, it's interesting to me the military equipment and how it has evolved over the last 100 years, say. And uh, then my father and my uncles all served in World War II, uh, one of my uncles in combat, and how their gear differed from World War I. And then the Korean War, and of course Vietnam, I had a cousin who was killed in Vietnam and served there, and then uh, two nephews who served in Iraq and Afghanistan. And uh, it's interesting to me to see soldiers today compared to soldiers even of the Vietnam era or World War II. I mean, they are geared up. I mean, it's amazing, the gear. And I think, why did it take so long to give them all that gear and for the believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, when you think of Ephesians 6 and the spiritual armor, our offensive weapon is the word, but all of our defensive things are the shield and the, and the breastplate and you know, girding ourselves up. And the idea is if we're not as believers in the word, we are going to be tricked. We will be overcome in this spiritual warfare. And false teachers can take hold of us as gullible Christians or untaught Christians. It always amazes me that uh, people who can go to a certain church with a certain doctrine and claim to believe that doctrine, then they leave and go to another church which teaches an opposite doctrine and how they can settle in there. I do not understand that. And it's, to me, it's they are unstable and they are being tricked in that sense. And so uh, these false teachers are promising freedom in two areas, freedom of autonomy, thinking that if I'm free, I don't answer to anybody. I don't need to submit to the authority of the apostles or their promise of the return of Christ. I don't need to submit to that. I can do as I please. Secondly, false teachers teach freedom of self-expression. The lustful desires of a sinful human nature is affirmed. If you've noticed in this chapter how many times sensuality is mentioned in, 
in connection with false teachers. It's about satisfying the flesh, not only in a lustful, immoral way in that sense, but also I'm going to do what I want to do. I'm going to be my own person, and that's feeding the flesh. The whole package is wrapped up in empty, boastful words from the false teacher. Even though they may sound attractive, even though they seem that to be the answer for the day, on closer examination, there's usually a gap between what these people claim publicly and what their lives reflect privately. Uh, so a non-judgmental ethic, and that's the day we live in, but we've got to be tolerant of every view, a non-judgmental ethic and an open-ended theology will offer to the immature Christian who do not know enough to refuse it, and they cannot see the selfishness masquerading as spirituality. It is sharply contemporary, one writer said. And fourthly, in verses 20 through 22, apostates are destined for judgment. This is where he expands upon in verse 17, when black darkness has been reserved for these false teachers. We saw in earlier examples, remember Peter uses three examples, actually four examples in this chapter of false teachers. First of all, the fallen angels who sin are judged. And in that class of angels, they've been reserved in the pit, chained, bound, if you will, uh, since then, since the angels fell. And he, he uses that to describe even these angels, these perfect beings who sinned and decided to go against God, these are bound. God has judged them and will continue to judge them. He also talked about the ancient world, about before Noah's day, the evilness of the world and how God judged the world. And he also used the example of Sodom and Gomorrah and, and how Sodom and Gomorrah was so evil that God destroyed it. And then he talked about the false prophet uh, Balaam and how he was judged in that. But uh, they're destined for judgment. In verse 20, they know the way, but they're entangled again in sin. Look at verse 20 and 21 with me here this morning. For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and are overcome. The last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than to have known it, to turn away from the holy command handed down to them. Uh, Part of the issue here, and I've heard sermons on this passage uh, where people automatically think this uh, demonstrates and shows that you can lose your salvation. Uh, this is ripping a verse out of context, and uh, but they'll usually quote these verses and say, well, you can see, uh, you can escape the pollutions, you have knowledge of the Lord and Savior, you can fall and become entangled, and uh, you can lose your salvation in that. However, they forget the context of this passage, and they forget the little word T-H-E-Y, they. They, and if you look at the context throughout this passage of the word they, if you study it from the beginning of chapter 2, you will discover that it's talking about wells without water, clouds without rain, spots and blemishes. You will trace it back to two, chapter 2, verse 1, and you will see it's talking about false teachers and the false doctrines of demons. And you will see that the they, that's important, the pronouns are important, You cannot use this verse to say you can lose your salvation. That does violence to the text because it is ripped out of context here. As Wes said, we are saved. Uh, Once you are saved, you are assured and secure in what Jesus Christ has done. 
Uh, in fact, if you rip it out of context, the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 2.17, for we are not as many who corrupt the word of God. Paul there is speaking about false teachers who corrupt the word of God. The word there, the Greek word that's used, translated corrupt, basically means selling something in the marketplace deceitfully, selling a product that really wasn't as it claimed to be or falsifying the product. Paul said there were some who falsify the word of God. They corrupt it to fit their own thoughts. And so this does not teach that you can lose your salvation because elsewhere in Scripture, it very firmly talks about our security in Christ. For instance, the end of Romans chapter 8. And then in verse 22, we have this very vivid picture of what these false teachers and their followers are like. He tells us in verse 22, a dog returns, as it happened to them, according to the true proverb, a dog returns to its own vomit and a sow to its washing returns, wallowing in the mire. A person's true nature will come out. The picture here is no matter if you give the dog a bath, if you get it all pretty and put bows in its hair, it's going to return to the dirt. It will eat its own vomit. A pig, you can take it to the fair, shine it all up, groom it, buff it really nice so it looks good, but it will go right back and wallow in the mire is what it is saying. So it's the idea of a nature, and the nature goes back. As Christians, we have a new nature. We are given the Holy Spirit who indwells us, and Jesus Christ who saved us, his righteousness is imputed to us. So when we act contrary to the will of God and the word of God, we are acting contrary to our new nature. We are giving ourselves over to our fleshly nature. Remember, the flesh is not redeemed yet. And so our flesh does battle with our spiritual nature. And sadly, oftentimes, our flesh wants to win out, doesn't it? Because I want what I want when I want it. And yet he tells us here that these false teachers, they go back to their nature, and their nature is like an unknowing animal to do that. We need to remember uh, in this whole thing, remember, uh, we can get very disappointed and discouraged and perhaps even fearful that there are false teachers behind every door. No, he's calling us to be discerning. He's calling us to recognize the seriousness of this. He's calling us to recognize that all views are not right. He's calling us to understand God's word and to apply it correctly. We need to understand that in the New Testament, as we take a broader view, it's called the weight of Scripture, that salvation in Christ is full, final, and free. That is your clarion call. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, the cross is God's ultimate solution, and uh, we need to rest upon that. Secondly, there will always be non-Christians in local churches. We need to remember that also. Uh, There are non-Christians in local churches. Jesus taught that there will not only be wheat, which is representative of believers, but there will also be weeds or tares in the church. And God is the one who sorts that out, okay? Thirdly, from the outside, it is extraordinarily difficult to tell a real from a fake Christian, okay? It's extraordinarily difficult. Basically, I can only have relative assurance of your salvation if you're a believer. And likewise, or conversely, you can only have relative assurance of my salvation. You cannot have security in my salvation, and I cannot have security in your salvation just based upon the words you say and how you live your life out and what you claim for your eternal well-being. 
That is called relative assurance. And if I am not assured of someone else's salvation, it's my responsibility to remind them of the gospel and to tell the gospel to them. But it is very difficult to tell a real from a fake Christian. Fourthly, in cases where there is blatant disobedience, the church leadership has the responsibility of discipline. When we see that somebody's living outside, blatantly outside of God's will, it is church leadership responsibility to exercise church discipline. And finally, the acid test is whether we are merely hearers of God, God's word or doers as well. Are we Sunday-only Christians, or does it affect our week every day of our week? Do we worship the rest of the week, or is it only for an hour on Sunday? And finally, we need some measure of self-examination and that spiritual growth is a healthy thing in our lives. Are we growing spiritually? This whole section has been full of strong language as we come to a conclusion of chapter 2 here. And when we go to chapter 3 in a few weeks, we will see that we have great hope, and that is the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. But this whole section has had strong language and talk of pigs and dogs and vomit and mud and false teachers, and we can get very discouraged if we think that's all there is to this, it is a, a strong language. And in our sanitized society, we might view this as in bad taste, actually. And yet God has led Peter to write this because of a very pressing problem in 62 AD. And it's a very pressing problem in our day and age in 2016. And he is describing the utter corruption of sin as that it really is. And each of us needs to be impacted and impressed and reflect upon the corruption of sin as it really is because it is just abhorrent to our God. If if such ideas strike us as being kind of strong, it indicates perhaps how lightly we take the most important and ghastly division in in all of eternity. The horrific picture of these people are worse off at the end than they were at the beginning uh, echoes Jesus' account of the man who was demon-possessed and was exercised of one demon, but nothing replaced it. And he ended up with seven, so his final condition of, man, of this man was worse than the first. We find that in Matthew chapter 12. Peter does not detail for us how these false teachers are worse off. He doesn't spell it out. Perhaps he means that their sin is more serious, their hearts are more hardened, their minds more cynical, or their slavery of self more intense. But that is the condition of those who are put in gloomy dungeons awaiting judgment. And for the believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, we await his judgment. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for today. Thank you for your people, and thank you, Lord Jesus, for your faithfulness in equipping us through the power of your word, the application of your Holy Spirit, through the righteousness that is imputed to believers by Jesus Christ. We thank you for this day. And Lord, uh, may we be sobered by the seriousness of what your Apostle Peter has written down and this whole, this wave upon wave of strong wording and language uh, that tells us how serious this is in your eyes. And Lord, we pray that we would be discerning, that we would be a people who honor and love you and a people who honor and love one another. For it's in Jesus' powerful name I pray. Amen.